This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hello, this is Anke Zett, um, author of the Deception book, which is the first one of the Unearthly Talent series um, on the podcast The Right Way with Sam Elliott. I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> Yes, Anka, my friend, thank you so much for introducing this episode of the Right Way Podcast Program. And hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program. It is I, your host. I'm not going to say host of the most, but definitely the host of this particular podcast program, uh, Samuel James Elliott of the Right Way Podcast Program. Uh, the person whom you just heard introducing this episode is none other than today's guest, Anka Zet. Anka and I are uh, paths crossed. Uh, getting back, when was that? It was in the outbreak of COVID. Uh, so it's got to be 2020, early 2020. We first met at the Australian Writers' Centre. We undertook the six-month Write Your Novel course with the lovely Bernadette Foley there. And that was where we first met and became fast friends, as I did with the majority of the class and still talk to them to this day. Uh, but yes, uh, Ankar is a doctor by profession, a writer by passion and vocation, and we discussed the first in her Unearthly Talent series, book one, Deception. Deception uh, follows Earth woman Ellie, uh, who is not the kick-ass heroine described in her favourite books, although surrounded by plenty like her grand and sister Bree. I don't want to delve too much into trying to kind of cover the synopsis of, or synopsis of Deception and the overarching sort of uh, massive epic story there because Anka's work sort of speaks for itself and I do urge you to get a copy uh, there of it via the link that we're going to be provided I will provide sorry in the bio slash description of this particular episode but I'll talk a little bit more about that at the tail end of the episode I must also warn you and it would be remiss of my duties to fail to do so but I just want to give you guys a heads up that Anka's internet wasn't um wasn't the best in parts and it dropped out a little bit here and there or our connection did I should say and so that means that uh, what I did was try to be as patient as possible so in terms of waiting for the uh, for the internet to catch up as it were so if you do hear a bit of a weird pause or anything like that or a bit of a robotic voice happening I do apologize about that purely internet uh, internet connectivity issue stay with it keep hearing this um, this stimulating conversation between me and my friend Anka but in the interim everyone please give a big digital round of applause to Anka Zet discussing with me the first in her book series Unearthly Talents Deception Anka thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program how are you doing yeah very well thank you how are you I'm good I'm very good I'm very very good very very good very very fortunate to talk to you about your book and hearing about the journey because I've been very fortunate enough to witness some of it, obviously, with the Australia Writers Centre sort of uh, component, as well as obviously continuing to stay in touch after. But um, I kind of wanted to hear in your words, first and foremost, starting off with where the sort of idea generated for deception and kind of hear a little bit about that first and foremost before we get into the nitty gritty of the writing process. So where did you first come up with the idea, Anka? How long was it gestating sort of thing like that? About eight years ago, I heard um, that a lady made, a scientist made uh, the internet visible. And I I was like sitting in an airplane and I thought, wow, what would that be like if you could see the internet? Like if it was something that you could do. And that was the first step. And then uh, just this story poured into my mind and I wrote like, three A4 pages while I was sitting in the airplane and it evolved from there. And of course, a lot of um, themes I cover in that book have always been in my mind that I wanted to cover um, about what, where, where we might be evolving to, uh, where, where we've come from, whether we are abandoned as a planet, that kind of thing. Also what, um, gene technology might might actually do to to us and how we learn to live with that when we are changed when we are not just organic specimens um and how that will affect our relationships with each other well so many so many different ideas in there so that was eight years ago so that was what obviously started it off but you tell me a little bit about the writing process itself as well before you kind of joined with australian writer center yeah because you had already written something from memory of like 
to the tune of a couple yeah. hundred thousand words or something, I think. Yes. Like, I, um, like eight years I had the idea and then I presented um, a, a chapter to a friend of mine and she said, you have to join our writers group. Uh, this is really good. And okay, it took me a bit of time to get the courage up and I joined them. And then every month they asked me to write a new chapter. And that's how I got the first draft within one and a half or two years finished. And then it was all about editing and polishing it and also learning how to write that it like it doesn't only make sense, but it also is engaging and fun and yeah, that kind of thing. It wasn't something that I could do. I had to learn it. And I think learning takes time. I'm a very slow learner. <laughs> so, um, whatever I do, it takes me time. But and I like to do it well. So um, and I think all, all along the way, I actually also lost faith. Mm. So I thought, I don't know what to change. I don't know what to do. And then after I've given it to my critiquing group, I decided to do lots of different um, courses. And one of them was the Australian Writer Center. So I had 220,000 words. And I knew it is too big, but I had no idea how to cut it down. And that was the biggest challenge for me because there were stories with stories and it was all important. So I had no idea what to do. Um, so the Australian Writers Centre, fine-tune it and yeah, learn certain things that I might not need. And, and also the idea of I might never get... Uh, professionally published just because it may never grow into a hundred thousand word novel like shrink into it say it that way which is the the maximum usually for a professionally published story so how did you then go determining where exactly so the, Sorry, okay. Sorry, so, I didn't hear you. I was just saying, so how then did you determine exactly when you were going to separate into the different installments? Because obviously you've you've envisioned envisioned it as this giant sort of sweeping sort of story and you didn't want to kind of compromise by cutting it down, like you said, like in fitting into a hundred thousand word sort of manuscript. So how then did you determine exactly where it was that you were going to break it apart? How did how did you go into getting to the point where obviously I now have the first copy of Unearthly Talents, the first book one in the series? Yes. Well, I, I must admit, I didn't break it up. I only took certain things out that I felt could be told in separate stories or like all the backstories of some of the characters don't necessarily they are not important for the story itself and they can be presented in separate books mm. and like when I went to a particular writing course which was called Story Doctor with um, Kate Forsyth she said you know words are never lost you just take them out and put them in a new project and I was content with it not losing any of my things and then it was just really also cutting down because I get um, the bows and I sometimes describe the same thing with two or three sentences. So making it shorter and just using one. Yeah, big learning curve. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, uh, I think like cutting anything is always hard. But when you realize um, what you can achieve with it, how, how much crisper the story goes, uh, grows, um, it all makes sense in the end. It's hard, but... Well, it is hard. Um, I'm glad that you didn't compromise with in terms of uh, the story that you wanted to tell because I think that you, you've, you've mentioned before as well that it can be you have somewhat been pressured or at least suggested quite heavily to potentially cut out large portions or large swathes of it in order to kind of make it more palatable. Tell me a little bit about that, Ankara, in terms of how that uh, how you've sort of encountered that and then how your resolve has kind of 
sustained itself with uh, ignoring um, some of those sort of suggestions as to what might have compromised the story as you saw it? I think first you have to know the story you want to tell. And mm. I knew the story that I wanted to tell and what had to be in there is that certain things didn't need to have to be in there. That could be, and that takes time um, to sort out. And I think there was one thing that somebody told me like five years ago, and that was, why don't you make this thing happen then? And then all the other things make much more sense. And I knew if I did that, it would be a huge rewrite. And I, I resisted it. And then about two years ago, I thought, well, I've tried everything else. I cut things and I polished it and it's still not working. And then I thought, well, the only thing I haven't done this is this big rewrite. <laughs> so I thought, okay. And then I sat down and I went step by step, a lot of thinking, a lot of headaches, but I made it work. And actually the story, I like it better that way. It's the story I wanted to tell, but that hadn't come out. So I think, I think the only thing I didn't do is accept everything that the editor suggested. Mm. There were certain things I thought, no, I want this dialogue to be like that. And I think it is important. And she accepted that too. So it was all right. Like, it's a two-way street, really. Didn't you have, there was, there was some occasions whereby some people, the beta readers, or they, they had read it or including the editor had read it and then they had told you or they described to you as to what they thought the story was and you were like, well, that's not the story I was trying to tell. Wasn't there didn't some of that? Were you telling me about some of that sort of thing that went on as well and that kind of concerned you as well as to how other people were interpreting it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when, yes. You see, the I didn't perceive how I portrayed my protagonist mm. as, um, as too passive or um, like too manipulable and gullible. Well, I think people like And I thought, well, I want to appeal to an age group that is that wants also women to have some um, self-motivation and self-preservation skills, surviving skills. And I thought, yes, she has that, but it didn't come through. So I only realized that when I read the report of one of the editors and says, well, you, you're making her sound like she's just into sex and that kind of thing. But this is not the story. Um, and also that the, um, the people that have come from the different planet are too powerful compared to the protagonist. And you have to make them a bit more even and equal. And... That's what I had to do. And I agreed with that because I didn't want her to be the, oh, and oh, <laughs> uh, like um, woman who is just manipulated throughout the whole book and not learning from it. I wanted her to learn from it. It's just that didn't come through in the, in the second, third draft. So I knew I had to change that. And that's why I'm so glad I did, even though it was a lot of work. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you kind of um, could see the the merit to what was said and then kind of uh, work to actualize or what you sort of perceived as needed to be done to be done, no matter how much sort of uh, mountains of work that was kind of assigning to yourself. Because that is a little bit disheartening, I guess, when, when someone kind of uh, reads your story and they've completely interpreted it in a way that you didn't think or it wasn't what you were trying to convey, particularly with core characters. Yes. That could be pretty disparaging, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, the the thing also is that I had three or four professional read it. Mm. I wouldn't have taken it for one. But when you get a kind of similar feedback from a lot of them, mm. you think there's definitely something not shining through that I want to shine through. And then you take it on board because what's me? I mean, I'm, I'm just a, a humble writer who's like 10 years ago, had no idea about writing kind of thing. Um, so if they feel what I want to, say isn't actually coming through then i have to believe them hmm. and like their critiquing is not to put me down it's to bring me forward and you have to be able to take that I yeah what like sometimes when you read you don't because it's your own baby you, you are far too involved and you can't see the woods for the trees and then 
because I, I think I don't trust just one person. I gave it to a, a few different professionals. Mm. And when a similar things comes back with three of them, then you think I have to work on it. I can't ignore it. Mm. And that's what I think that's what motivated me in the end to, to do the big rewrite. It's, it's, it's an interesting one. And I'm glad that you kind of undertook it, but uh, from the outset, it's kind of, it seems a little bit daunting to me because I know that if I give it to four different, if I give any sort of story to four different people, I'm going to get four completely different answers. There might be some sort of overlapping sort of criticisms or feedback, but it seems like it could be, it could be more discombobulating and um, kind of counterproductive than it can be kind of beneficial to have like lots of people sort of, um, sort of reading your writing, particularly if it's, if it's genre work or if they, if they feel so strongly about it, I don't know. What, what do you feel? Is that how you feel about like the same sort of situation, Ankur, in terms of like, you don't, you don't obviously regret. It sounds like you found it to be quite an invaluable experience having these, these people sort of critique your writing. It didn't seem to kind of have like that sort of negative sort of scenario that I kind of painted there, which is talking about having some very, very disparate sort of clashing opinions kind of leaving you in the lurch. No, because I learned from each different professional something else that I can improve on. Mm. So it wasn't, it wasn't just certain ideas that I didn't convey properly. It was also lacks in my storytelling that I learned from different, uh, different things that were missing. Mm. And I think I'm a, I, I get things slowly and from different teachers, I grasp different things. But when a, a theme comes back a few times, you know that you have to work on that theme. It's not you take everything what they're saying. Is you? I think you have to get a feeling because you know within yourself something isn't quite right. That's why I've given it to people to read. Because I targeted a younger age group mm. rather than the beta readers. Most of my beta readers were all my age, so all in their 40s, 50s, mm. 60s. So they could see beyond um, certain themes and, and see the magic in the relationship rather than um, the lack of what she had. Mm. Whereas I wanted also young people to read it and not be opposed by that she was this helpless woman. And that's why I want, I want this to appeal to more people, not just my age group. That was also one of the things. Um, and it's different when your friends and acquaintances read a book than somebody who has, doesn't know you, doesn't put a picture of you and like into it yeah um and that's why i think taking people who have no idea about you and your life and whatever and then read it you get a much better idea yeah i think they, that... because they can get it objectively without you knowing of course i would sometimes swear they know this is right and she got this completely wrong <laughs> so i I struggled with that too. It's not all easy to taking any criticism, but I always feel like I learn from everything and I move forward. I've been a survivor all my life and that's part of it. To get better, you have to struggle and then you move through it. That's the only thing that brings you forward. Well, I'm glad that the struggle has not um, proven overwhelming and that you've continued to doggedly pursue it. And obviously that's why we're having this conversation now, particularly when I guess um, given the nature of the story that you've wanted to tell. And I mean, you mentioned that about not wanting to kind of, or not just knowing your own story and knowing your own writing and that it wouldn't be able to kind of fit within, cram within hundred thousand words uh, sort of context. Cause then that's in and of itself is kind of like not disheartening, but that's just another sort of added sort of hardship potentially to, to the writing of your story, because then, you know, well, I'm writing this, it's lengthy um, and that, that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be a consideration at all, really, in my, in my humble opinion. And I know that we've had discussions about, and last time I saw you, we had a discussion about how it's, um, from a marketable perspective, it's easier for, for publishers, particularly with debut novelists to take on, uh, something that's, you know, uh, the word count is, is less because it's, it's, it's cheaper for printing costs and stuff like that. And it, that, that could be a little bit saddening because then you're like, well, this isn't, this isn't the story in which I want to tell and I can't possibly contain it within this sort of uh, this very lean amount of word count. 
you know. But like that, that obviously didn't factor on you, Uncle, because you you you, you didn't um, sort of compromise. Is that am I right in thinking that, or did that sort of play at least at some point in your your writing process of of deception? No, I think you can't compromise on your story. But um, I learned that if I cut something out, I don't lose it. Mm. It's just that I might have to use that part of the the story in something else. And when you know that, that, and also when, when I started writing the story, I think I had to write through to get sometimes to the point I wanted to get to. And I now realize certain things I had to just write to then get the chapter that needed to be written. And now it was just saying, okay, those two chapters I do not need because this will fit perfectly here, but mm. I had to do it to get there. So it's a process. And because writing is new and, and for me, and I've never done like a course in literature or, or English or whatever. Um, this is something that I learned through doing courses. And, mm. um, and then I, do, I wasn't scared anymore. You to get to an aim and sometimes it means that you have to cut things out again because you realize actually this whole time spent isn't relevant but that point and that point is but that's something that i learned as i say is slow mm. <laughs> and certain concepts you can somebody can tell you about it and you only understand it the third time you hear it suddenly it makes sense it, it, and that's that can't be forced no, I can't. And I think I'm I'm just a I'm I'm just a sunny person who survives and thrives and I learned to take critique over eight, ten years and it gets easier and easier. Yeah, it does. And it's interesting that you mentioned about uh, learning from different courses because I find that it's just such a fine balance between uh, intuitive and kind of like as to how you feel the story should be told, as in you sense it, it's kind of like a six six sort of sense with creativity when you're just kind of in that zone and you're so deeply immersed that it just pours out of you. And then there's the, yeah, like the, the formal sort of education that you can kind of learn how to better your craft. But then too much of that can also make you second guess yourself or kind of make you feel like you're shoehorned in or confined by sort of convention. So it's kind of a double-edged sword in that regard um, for it. But I'm glad that you obviously um, wanted to sort of improve your craft and then went about going all these courses naturally, because otherwise I wouldn't have met you had you not done the Australian writers course with me. So that's all well and good. I'm glad that you did that. But um, what about the actual process? Cause you, you had obviously you'd written your novel and then I think you wanted to go the normal sort of traditional. Yeah. Route and I think what, I, yeah, yes. I think the, the problem that I had, I was too impatient and I mm. think, <laughs> um, I thought I was ready like I thought five years ago I was ready and I had a friend read it and she also self-publishes and she said I'm sorry but I have to tell you it's not ready mm. and to understand what she meant took me a while like took me another two three four years and now I completely understand where she come from but this is growing and impatience yeah I'm, unfortunately that's yeah that's me and I think I tried to apply for uh, like professional public publishing too early and when my word count was far too high as well and it wasn't um the best i could and everybody always says apply when you have done the best you could and i thought mm -hmm. well obviously i hadn't i had misjudged that and also maybe maybe i have written a niche kind of story that isn't something for a broad audience i don't know and that's why uh publishers aren't necessarily uh say yay you know and go for it i don't know um but i don't really worry about that i can only write what i can write isn't it like yeah whatever comes into your mind you do and if you try and force something else it's just not going to come out properly because you have to be honest when you write if you can't be honest on paper it just shines through mm. And um, why should I write about something that I don't feel honest about? And I think all the things I've mentioned in there, even though they are not 
super sci-fi, like there's no hardcore sci-fi in there, but there's a lot of elements that will be in the future and they will actually um, influence us. And, and also I really would like to know the answers to those <laughs> things that I've mentioned in there. I, I would love to be frozen and then be reawakened in time. <laughs> so, Jeez, would you? Um, I don't know if I would, to be honest, but... Yes, yeah. I would definitely. Oh, really? I, just, I, I don't know if I want to see what's going on in about 100 years' time, but, you know, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, but see, um, if you think... Well, you're very young, and I'm... Well, I'm, I'm double your age. And if you think, well, I've lived a long time, and, you know, by the time this may be even an option, it will be another 20 years. I will be quite old then. And then you can say you've lived your life, but to get a glimpse into the future, I would definitely take, just imagine they can actually reverse some of the age damage and they can infuse you and then you can be reawakened and feel like 50 again. You see, this is something and then actually, like, of course, you might not like the future they put you back into, yeah. but well, you know what it could have been like because you've lived it before. Yeah, it's it's food for thought. I'm not too sure, particularly because immortality uh, or anything you like have that. To be, you have to be optimistic in that kind of sense. <laughs> I try. I try. I'm optimistic about a great many things, Uncle. I am. I am. But it's interesting that you brought up there a couple of different things, particularly when you talk about impatience. That definitely resonated with me because certainly I've been guilty of the exact same thing when it comes to setting out stuff when it's not necessarily ready. And then there's always the, you know, the kind of snake eating its tail as to like, when, when is something ready? What constitutes as being ready? I dare say I would, I would, I would stake my life on this belief um, that there's many a novel that's published that is in no way, shape or form anywhere remotely as ready as, as your own sort of manuscripts there. So it's, it's, I mean, you do want it obviously to be as, as, as ready as, as possible, but then I think that it can be an endless sort of, uh, whirlpool yes. rabbit hole as to trying to con what constitutes that where's the demarcation of not being ready and ready so it's a tough one and i i think sam uh, because i'm just thinking about it for me it was also um i had drawn a line i had eight years ago i had set myself a goal i'm a first time writer mm. i give myself eight years to finish this project if i can't do it then i will never be finished and when the time came nearer and like six and a half years were gone, I thought, oh my God, I've only got that much time left until I beat my own timeline. Then I thought, I really have to do something about this if mm. I want to get that done. And I did. I got myself, uh, um, like I went into courses and I went and joined the publishing school and got an editor and I did all the things that you should do. And I think setting a timeline is really important because also I, I realized that it, not having done anything with the first book was kind of preventing me from getting the second book going mm. and really going. I mean, because I wanted this out in the universe because it wasn't just for me a story. I wanted to write the story because I wanted it out in the world for my friend who died of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And I have made this promise to me that I will write a story that I will be proud of for her because I could never be the medical scientist to cure her cancer because I'm not clever like that. But I could help raise funds by writing a book that people will love and by buying them and you know, giving a percentage to Cancer Council, one day we will have a cancer-free future. And that was my motivation. I think, if, I think the biggest thing for me is if you set yourself a promise to yourself, you have to keep it. Mm. I've always done that. I hate people who give promises and don't keep them. So I can't do it. So I did. And that was the biggest thing as I thought. And also overcoming your little, like I have so much inner rabbit in me, always anxious about little things and oh, and I think I set myself a goal when I was 50. I will overcome little anxieties and just do it. And that makes you stronger. <laughs> Those well, so little glad. rabbit moments. <laughs> I'm so glad that you set a goal and kept it on I mean, that's a really, really nice and noble sort of reason as to, to why you, you kind of set and kept a goal like that. 
I'll say for me, it's like, it's, it's definitely set goals and keep them, but be kind to yourself as well in terms of um, understanding you can only do as much as you can possibly do. And then you're kind of reliant on other people doing things after. Yeah. Like you can write a novel and send it out into the world, but that's the extent of what you can possibly do. Then after that, it gets to a point you don't have access to the keys, the keys to the castle in terms of the, the printing presses and the yes. advertising and the, the PR and everything like that to yes. thereby, you know, do the rest of it. You, at some point you just have to rely on other people. And if those people aren't yet kind of on board with your vision and, and your writing, there's not too much you can kind of do the way I kind of look at it. And I guess like the longer I've kind of been doing it for, uh, is that I'm always going to kind of be still doing it because like I've been doing it, um, I think longer than you. <laughs> I think longer than you. I've been doing it since I was like 17. I'm 34 in August, and I've written like 10 novels that I would probably never see the light of day, you know. And um, I'm pretty fine with that. I feel like the older I've gotten, the more I've kind of like accepted that if the traditional publishing thing doesn't. Um, doesn't work out. It's actually not the end of the world. And the way I kind of no. look at it is you, the way that most writers quantify success is, is being published. Yeah. It's understandable. I felt that I've spent decades trying to, trying to, you know, aspire to realizing that, but the way I kind of look at it is that in and of itself is actually almost, almost a silly sort of um, way to sort of quantify that you've uh, or qualified that you've succeeded because all it really is doing is taking your words putting them in a binding, printing them, putting them in a binding, and then there's something tangible there. That's it. That's all it's doing. Whereas you're already actually doing the act itself. Yeah. Like you're already doing the craft. You're already writing the words with you in particular. I mean, the amount that you've, that you've produced is, is prolific. It's prodigious. Like there's a huge amount. Like that's, that's getting to, you know, like almost like war and peace type territory of 220 something thousand words. Like a little bit off that, a little bit off that, but my, my numbers aren't exactly accurate, but you know what I mean? Like you persisted with it and you've actually achieved and done what you've, you've set out to do. And, and that, and I think is kind of like the common, uh, what people, uh, writers can tend to have a tendency to overlook is that you're already doing it. If you're already doing it, you're already doing it. It doesn't so much matter if you get yeah. published, as long as you're continuing to do it. And that's, that's kind of, I guess that you're already living the dream and then the rest of your life is kind of, uh, going along, churning along nicely. I don't know. What do you think? Well, um, yeah, don't give up. And the, I must admit, I would have preferred to go the professional route. Be really, I, I did not want to do all the red tape. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, self-publishing is hard in the sense because you do not have um, the distribution that you get. Like publishers are connected to bookstores, mm. have uh, like uh, promotions that they can advertise. And you don't have to do anything but write and indulge your own creativity. Mm. You just give it to them and they do everything. When you self-publish, there's so much stuff. Ugh. I'm not good with red tape at all. So for me, that was the hardest thing. And I must admit, didn't like it one bit. Is it harder than you thought it would be? Yes. Yeah. Like, even though, like, I never, I never considered it until I found the self-publishing school. Mm. And I thought I like the, I like the idea of school because I always loved school. <laughs> and like um, having somebody to teach me how to do step-by-step step, uh, to get there to self-publishing was really invaluable to me. I would never have done it otherwise. And the only thing where I think I failed is that I rushed the end. Like when it came to uh, be really diligent and checking the title and checking this and checking that, I made all the mistakes they told me not to. And that was, <laughs> every, everything went pear-shaped. Anyway, so instead of doing it once, I had to do it twice or three times and that kind of thing. Mm. And that's because I rushed. Because, because I you wanted just wanted to it done with it. You... Yes. Yeah. And I think that's the... That's, I think, one of the um, advice I would say, yes, set yourself a time frame, but for the self-publishing frame, you know, give yourself four, six months and do it really slowly and, you know, so you don't have to rush and then you won't make all the mistakes I made and all that. Yeah, but I must admit, it's not my thing and I'm, 
I would be glad to give all that to a publisher to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can't be too hard on yourself, can you, Anka? I mean, like, it's all a learning process and the whole sort of rushing thing that you're talking about at the end there, it's not so much that it's, like, sloppy worksmanship. It's that you just, you just, you're just at this point where you've looked at the same words, you've done all this sort of stuff for years on end, yeah, and it's just, like, you just, you just want it done with. I can certainly empathise with that. All, that resonates with me on many levels as to, as to that feeling of just needing it done with, yeah? Yeah, but that it's not about the manuscript anymore. Mm. It's about what the steps you have to take to put it on Amazon and put it on um, Ingram Spark or whatever distribution company you want to use. And all the little things are like get it copyrighted if you don't want to just rely on your own copyright, what's in your computer. Mm. Um, there's so many little steps and emails you have to write and fill out forms online. <laughs> I could happily skip that part again. <laughs> and, Sorry, you go. And even if you learn it, and even if you do another course or, or re, like revise it, I don't think I will ever find that easy. Any bit more easy for the second time round, I guess. But um, and I I know that I wouldn't rush it anymore. But red tape is no fun. <laughs> no, you are doing you like you said, like the publishers. I mean, like you are doing the work of about eight different people with the with the work, not even just the the writing. Like you said, you were lucky <laughs> to as the red tape. So, but I mean, for someone that started, that came into that uncle man as a complete novice, surely you must look at it and say, yeah, I made some mistakes, but overall, I think I've done a pretty good job particularly with like how the sales have been going and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. I'm proud of that. I got through it, but it's not something that I would put. Like I would love to somebody for somebody else to take that responsibility because like, um, now the book is out. Mm. It's uh, uh, like, uh, you have to, it's like a water drop. 120,000 books get published each year. It's like, okay, nobody will even know if I put my book there. It is just going to... What were you saying, Anka? You said something about the 120,000 like books. swimming that... in this big, grand ocean of books. Sorry, Anka, your internet did that thing. What, what did you say? You, you were talking about 120,000 books a year. What were you saying? I said um, 120,000 books a year yep. are published in the US alone every year. Right. Yeah. So one book is like a drop in an ocean of books. So you, if you don't have anybody push your book into a direction, if you don't have a publisher who attacks all the different bookstores and uh, outlets and reviewers and things like that, your book is just going to sink further and further into the forest of books and that's the part that is the hardest because you now can't like i can't just let it go i could and then it just fizzles out all the people that i know and that wanted it have bought it no if you want that book to go further you have to do what the publisher does you have to buy advertisement and promotions you have to do what we're doing you know that kind of thing you have to try and um, get it noted somehow. If you think your product is good, you have to get it noted. And that's mm. also part that I, I don't really like self-promoting. Like I'm fine with friends and people that I got to know, but like the rest of it, nah. Pretty strong I, like, I, I think heart. that's what you have to resign yourself with. Um, when, when you know that you're self-published, nobody will actually sell the books for you. You have mm. to sell them. You have to join conventions, buy a table, put your books out there. And yes, it's a job for five other people. Mm. But it does work. It does work. I mean, it truly does work. Like that, that, that guy I was telling you about, sure. the Australian New York Times bestseller, that Jay Kristoff guy, he, he started off doing that thing, Uncle, like that whole Supernova Festival that's coming up. He, he's, he'll, he'll proudly tell that story of putting out yes. stalls and stuff like that, self-published, kind of trying, trying to get people interested in his work. So it definitely works. And I mean, like you do strike me as an optimist at heart with all this. I mean, like you said before, like you were eager to, to you know, 
come back in a hundred years time. I myself am not, I don't know if that's, I'm an optimist at heart in some regards. I don't know if I'd want to be around in about a hundred years time, but for the purposes of what we're talking about within the context of this particular question and answer, I feel that you are an optimist at heart and you can see the light at the end of the tunnel and positivity or have a positive sort of slant on things. Yeah. And you need to, but like, what's like I said, I mean, like you have been successful with it. You've had several events. I mean, there was the event that you mentioned, because you you divide your time between Sydney and Maruya. And I think you had an event there where you, you sold like 50 plus copies or something that happened a while ago, didn't it? Isn't that kind of, you're talking about not being very good or not enjoying self-promotion. That's that's probably a good testament no, to being able to do I so. Because I knew, like the thing is, the, the thing is, sorry to interrupt you again. That's right. Um, I had to do it. I couldn't just have it published without um, doing anything about it. Mm. Because when you when you know you're going the road of self-publishing, you have to kind of compromise and say, okay, I have to try at least to get it out into the world. And how you do that is by doing author talks. But I'm not like pushing every library and like to do it. Like you, I try so many times, but I also get rejected. And that's you can only take so many rejections a day. <laughs> Mm. I can only take like and then you leave it for a bit and they think okay let's try another time yeah but when you, when you get out there yes of course you have to do those kind of things but I wish somebody else would have organized all that for me rather than me doing the work <laughs> well I mean this is only the start of your journey though isn't it I mean like this is the, the, the first step into who knows where could be very well talking keynote speaker or some sort of figure within the peering from the Sydney Writers Festival in a couple of years time. Who knows? Who knows what could possibly happen? Yeah. Are you working? Are you, you're working on the second one now? Yeah. The second and the. Yes. The I haven't, I haven't properly restarted the writing process. I must admit, because I've just been doing the fund funds for cancer council, um, practicing my dancing and last, um, need for the you know that kind of thing so i've been a bit sidetracked for all that but i thought once this i'm definitely going to get back into my regular right being published was i don't know getting into the second book again yeah i don't know i can't explain it but that's how it was i think the internet cut out a little bit there but what i got what i got at the tail end of that was that you've been busy with with doing the red tape sort of component, but then you're going to be getting back into the writing, hopefully, fingers firmly crossed for the second one in the near future. Is that, is that what you said? Uh, yeah, no, that I was preoccupied doing something else for Cancer Council. Right, right. I did the, yeah, the, I did the dance. I don't know much about that. Tell me about the dance. I'm, I'm intrigued. What's, what's the dance? For Eurobidollar Cancer. Well, it's a dance uh, competition that is done almost every year. Like last year, it wasn't because of COVID. Um, so there are usually nine to ten stars. Mm. You are know, you one uh, of them? Community members, like well, I was one, and then you're paired with um, a dance teacher, mm. and then you learn a routine, and you raise funds along the way until the big dances. And that was last night. Um, oh. So we were at, at the Batemans Bay Soldiers Club, and. Um, yeah, so everybody had their dance routines and there is a, a superb atmosphere. Like everybody's so positive because it's like all the fun $20,000, the nine of us with the event and all the fundraising we did. And it all goes to Eurobidollar um, Cancer Council transport and accommodation costs for cancer people. Oh, that's um, so good. So if you have radiotherapy... And because we don't have anything down here, they have to travel to Nara or Wollongong, which is two, three hours. They have to then stay there for three weeks sometimes to get radiotherapy. All the accommodation and transporting costs are covered by that. Oh, that's so good. And that's what we raised the money for. So, um, yeah, I did a lot of dance practicing. And, <laughs> and yesterday it was all done. And we won best costume. Yes. <laughs> Congratulations. It's fantastic. So, That's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I think there were, because I did two things like this fundraising and writing 
brain to be creative in any kind. So now all of this is done. I have no more excuse. <laughs> so you, so you're, because refresh my memory a little bit there, Anka. So, so you'd already written, you've already written uh, book two? It's half. Half, right, okay. Yes, but uh, because I did a big rewrite of the first book, mm. I did definitely have to rewrite of part of that again. Mm. And which is fine. It's just that you, I need to have a free brain for that. <laughs> and I didn't want, you know, like, there, there were too many little things happening. So many texts and emails about tickets and um, fundraising. And we did like Facebook auctions where you had to reply. There were too many of those little things going on. And I never had the space to just think, dream about the story. And that's why I had to wait. Okay. But, but now things are, things are going to quieten down a little bit. So, so that can, you can, you can reattach to the, to the dream umbilical cord yes. of creativity. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So what's, so, so the plan is, is to then um, publish the second, second installment um, in the, in the same fashion with, is that what the plan is? Or? Well, I, I always thought, well, if the first book isn't good enough for a, a professional publisher, a second book, maybe I can make it even better and <clears> then somebody will be attracted to it and maybe then they will take on the first book too. You know, one can always hope. <laughs> one could definitely hope. And, that's what, just that's, see, that's, and if not, then I will do the same thing again. Yeah, good. I mean, that's, that's just the way to go. But Sorry, you're cutting out. That's just the way to go, I guess, with it on crime. I mean, is the, the best way forward is to, to continue to write at the end of the day kind of thing. So I'm not sure how many I mean, I've, I've been writing lots of other things in between. but mm. Sorry, what? Oh, I was just saying, you go. Say again? No, no, you go. You're saying you've been writing lots of stuff in between? Yeah, because well, I, because with our writer school, we do little short stories and um, things happen around, like, it's only the big projects that you have to have. So, Anka, I'm sure you've caught a couple episodes of the podcast. You've probably heard one of the main questions I like to ask or kind of what the crux of what I started the podcast uh, produced it on is the question I always wanted to find out as to any sort of, portion or stage in a writer's life or career that they've encountered whereby they nearly consider giving up on writing particularly interested in your answer because you've had such an interesting and storied life not even before you undertook the the writing let alone when you did but i wanted to know if there was a sort of sort of time in your life where you nearly considered giving up writing if there was like you at the crossroads determining that you were going to continue to write and if so if that was the case what kind of prevailed to make you continue to write yeah, well, I definitely had a time like that. 15 years ago, I did my first course with Australian Writer Center. And I was told that I can't grasp the central writing technique. And I thought, I'm going to show you. <laughs> I will grasp it one day. <laughs> and, um, and I think uh, also at that time, I wrote my first story. And mm. I got terribly stuck and I couldn't finish it. And then I thought, well, maybe I can't write then. And I just left it for, I don't know, maybe a year. And then I thought, no, I can write. <laughs> it's like this little voice in your head. But you have been writing. You can do it. And then I started again. And then with the book was the same thing. I think it took me eight years because I lost faith in the middle of it. Uh, of thinking, oh, it's not good enough. Nobody wants to read it. It's just crap. And and then whenever I gave somebody a little bit to read, they said, no, it's a good story. You have to keep mm. going. I think, oh, maybe, maybe I should. So a lot of people along the way helped me to get my faith back, I guess. Good. You're like, when you, when you lose faith in yourself, you need other people to give it back to you, I guess. Yeah, it can definitely be like that, particularly when it comes to the writing sort of endeavor. But um, I'm glad that you've persisted with it, Anka, and I'm glad that uh, that you decided to do that Australian Writer Centre course, which also happened to overlap 
uh, with the same enrollment as one particular very handsome fellow called Samuel James Elliott, and uh, we got to Woo-hoo! become friends and then enjoy each other's sort of writing and, and stuff like that. And uh, I feel that we will for a great many years, and I look forward to being privileged enough to witness everything that happens with your own sort of writing and uh, getting you front and centre wrote to see whatever happens with mine kind of thing. Oh, definitely. I'm very humbled that you actually took me on because I know how many great writers you have on your program. I thought, oh my God, <laughs> he's actually taking me. Wow. <laughs> of course I would. I love your writing and I love your stories. And you, you're like, I've said it before, your fusion of your, your brain with your imagination and how you balance this incredibly scientific, pragmatic frame of mind with this incredibly vividly imagined and realized these these worlds and these concepts and a fusion of the two which is just utterly beyond me and my my limited intellect and understanding of the grasping that so yes it's been an absolute pleasure being able to talk to you and to read your stuff Anka, and i'm looking forward to seeing what the future holds for you with it all i definitely want to read yours <laughs> so you you better not give up I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't. I've been doing it for a while and I'll keep going. But um, in the interim, thank you so much for talking to me on the show today, Anka. Yes, it was a pleasure. So everyone, there you have it. That was me talking to my friend Anka Zett about her first in the Unearthly Talents book series, book one, Deception. So everyone, please give another big digital round of applause to Anka for talking to me on the show today. It's an absolute pleasure talking to her on the show, much like it is talking to her in real life, along with all my other writing chums that I acquired through the Australian Writers' Centre course in which I did. Uh, Yeah, I do encourage you to go and do those sort of courses. Uh, You might not get out of it what you wanted, but I think that you'll always get out what you needed. How's that for being nice and deep and philosophical there? Certainly, I hope uh, in your experience, you will experience what I experienced, which was making some really good uh, chums that also love writing and are really uh, into their writing as well as your writing and you guys get to swap and um, do some workshopping because that proves to be completely one of the most valuable things that you could possibly do in this crazy venture known as writing. So anyway, I digress. But yes, huge big thanks to Anka for talking to me on the program today. I do apologize about the uh, the dipping in and out there. Uh, that That is technology blame. Technology is certainly not for want of the connection, uh, intimate connection that uh, the speaker and the guest had. It was purely a connectivity issue, so I do apologize about that. But I do hope that you do enjoy the uh, discussion, listening to the discussion as much as I enjoyed leading the discussion. So yeah, it was a, it was a grand old time. Do look forward to seeing what Anka comes up with next, particularly within the second in the book series, and to continue from there as well. Uh, in the interim, thank you so much to you for listening to this particular episode, as well as all other episodes of the show in what I've always liked to call the ever proliferating back catalogue of content. So if you haven't already, be sure to go and listen to the uh, other such episodes that, you're, that you can listen to on, depending upon if you listen to this on Spotify or SoundCloud, or also I'll be checking out the iTunes option in the near future as well. Bear with me for not having done so already. I am only a mere mortal of a man that has a full-time job and various other sort of commitments, as we all do in this kind of tumultuous existence that we dare call life. But yes, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you haven't already, give a cheeky follow on Spotify so that you can hear any and all of the episodes that are coming out. Got a lot coming up in the coming weeks. Uh, big lineup, uh, fully booked up until July time, I believe. So there's going to be a lot of really cool people I'm going to be talking to as well. And yes, in the interim, I'm hoping everyone enjoys this particular episode and all others. Stay tuned, stay safe. Get a booster if you haven't already and just generally enjoy life to its fullness by reading some really good books by some incredible writers.